Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Today, I'll be talking with Paul Weithman about his book, Why Political Liberalism, which was published by Oxford University Press. A paperback edition is due out this fall. Paul Weithman is professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. It is difficult to overstate the importance of John Rawls to political and moral philosophy. I also think that it's not implausible to say that even in the distant future, Rawls's work will be studied alongside the great works of political theory by people like Hobbes, Locke, Kant, and Mill. Yet Rawls's work is commonly read as fundamentally disjointed, divided between early and late periods that are marked by the publication of his two major books, A Theory of Justice and Political Liberalism. What's more, the common account of Rawls's intellectual trajectory has it that the later Rawls came to regard the project of the early Rawls as deeply misguided in some way. That is, the later work is often read as an attempt to dial back or even renounce the project of a theory of justice. In other words, Rawls's second book, Political Liberalism, is most commonly taken to represent a drastic lowering of the ambitions for political philosophy. Now, in his book, Weithman meticulously develops and defends a non-standard account of Rawls's turn to political liberalism. According to Weithman, Rawls's second book, Political Liberalism, is addressed to the very same problem that Rawls is focused on in his first book, A Theory of Justice. Rawls's turn, then, according to Weithman, involves not a change of topic or a lowering of the sights of political philosophy, but rather a change in how Rawls understood the nature of social stability. If Weithman is correct, the standard understanding of Rawls's philosophy needs to change significantly. And perhaps more importantly, if Weithman is right, many of the common criticisms of Rawls more obviously miss their mark. The book, Why Political Liberalism, is a detailed and rigorous book, so there's a lot to discuss. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Paul Weithman. Hi, Bob. How are you this morning? I'm very well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. I'm glad to be here. Well, wonderful. Today, my guest is Professor Paul Weithman. He's the author of the book, Why Political Liberalism, which is just about to come out, I believe, in paperback with Oxford University Press. Um, This book is, to my mind, um, the very best uh, book-length examination of Rawls's political philosophy taken whole. Uh, to date. Um, 
I think it should be studied carefully by anyone interested in political uh, political theory and especially in liberal political philosophy. Um, and in particular, uh, the book Why Political Liberalism provides a very rigorous and careful examination of uh, the philosophical relationship between John Rawls's two major works, A Theory of Justice, originally published in 1971, and Political Liberalism, uh, which was originally published in 1993. To tell the story of Rawls's intellectual journey from his first book to the second book is to tell the story of the past 50 years of political philosophy. And what's more, uh, Weithman's analysis offers many really intriguing surprises for those of us who've been uh, working in these areas um, for a while. Um, so there's a lot to talk about, but before we get into the details of the book, Why Political Liberalism, Paul, why don't we first um, get a sense uh, from you uh, about how you came to philosophy and to this project in particular? Okay. I was born in Erie, Pennsylvania, and I had a not particularly intellectual or philosophical upbringing. Um, I'd always been drawn to teaching at some level. As long as I can remember, I was drawn to that because I always liked school and because I always had teachers whom I admired and whom I wanted to follow. So I got to college with something of a predisposition to academic life, but not a predisposition to philosophy. Uh, some people who end up in the profession of philosophy are natural philosophers or would tell you that they've been drawn to the subject from early in life. There's a really memorable passage, which you might remember from Collingwood's autobiography, in which he talks about stumbling on some philosophy book, I don't now remember whose it was, in a library when he was about 10 and realizing immediately that this was the subject for him. <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's not me. I hadn't ever encountered philosophy before I got to college. Philosophical ideas and philosophical questions came up, of course, in the humanities, uh, literature classes, history classes, to which I was quite drawn, but I had never encountered philosophy before college, and I had only the vaguest idea of, of what it was. Um, I've been a Catholic all my life, and I knew before I got to college that philosophy was something one studied if one wanted to become a Catholic priest, but beyond that, I knew nothing much about it. Um, and in fact, I went to college intending to study accounting because my parents impressed upon me that I had to, however I entered college, I had to leave it with a marketable skill. <laughs> and accounting was going to be it. And I thought, all right, I will do that. If I'm going to indulge myself, I'll study a little political science along the way, because I've always been something of a political junkie. still love to follow politics. Um, so when I uh, uh, was filling out a pre-admission or pre-enrollment form for Notre Dame, which is why I went to college, I indicated that I wanted to study a political science course or enroll in a political science course. Um, but the course was full. All Notre Dame undergraduates have to take, had to then and still have to take two philosophy courses. And so the computer, after detecting that my preferred course was full, just stuck me in an introductory philosophy class of 200 people. Uh, it was an enormous intro class taught by a man named Mike Lux, um, who is just an electrifying teacher. And it was a tremendously exciting class. Mike has a big personality that's capable of filling a room of 200 and more. The course was intellectually challenging. It was really bracing. I, I loved the rigor of the class. And like a lot of young people, I suppose I liked 
the like that you could take up big questions and actually beat people at arguing about them. Um, and so I decided I wanted to take more philosophy and get more involved in the in the department in in the discipline. And the philosophy department at Notre Dame then was a, a perfect fit for me. It was um, then one of the strongest, it still is one of the strongest departments at the university. And what made it that way at the time was this cadre of really exciting, razor sharp assistant and associate professors um, who it was great fun to be around and whom I found I, I wanted to be like. And I guess what, what really drew me into philosophy was that the, the big questions could be posed and addressed with a kind of clarity and rigor by people I, I deeply admired and wanted to, to emulate. And that's an experience I try to give my students. I don't know how successfully I managed to do that, but I, I try to give my students something of, um, something of what I had. Um, I mean, that's how I got drawn into philosophy. And uh, I didn't really know a whole lot about the profession of philosophy, even as I finished college, but I knew that I wanted to do more. And I had the chance to, to go to graduate school and I seized it. And um, my experience at Harvard as a graduate student was somewhat more complicated than my experience as an undergraduate, but I was, I was tremendously lucky to have had the directors that I did. Um, I had two people I deeply admired direct my work, Rawls and Judith Sklar of the political science department. Uh, mm -hmm. Rod Firth, Warren Goldfarb, Martin Nussbaum were also influences on me. Um, throughout my time, I think I've owed an enormous debt to my teachers for kindling and sustaining my interest in philosophy. And that's that's why I dedicated the book to them. Right, right. Well, excellent. Um, and your work... Um... Again, just to uh, say something I'm sure many of our reader, uh, listeners uh, will know, your work really has followed out um, uh, in lots of ways. Um, many of the themes, not only, I mean, and of course, obviously, this, this most current book, but many of the, the philosophical themes, uh, not only of Rawls, but also of Schlar, um, in that your earlier work is concerned with citizenship and um, issues about um, moral and religious commitment. Uh, in uh, democratic society um, and such, uh, so uh, you're 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 doing uh, your teachers proud, I'm sure. Um, so uh, let's turn to the book. Um, and um, so this is uh, a book um, that I have to say, in reading it, um, I, I keep up with the Rawls literature uh, somewhat. Um, and um, your book, Why Political Liberalism sort of struck me as, as I was reading it as the, the first book on Rawls that I've read that reads in a way that makes it very similar to how one might um, uh, read a – or what, very similar to a book on Aristotle or a, a book on one of the great philosophers. This is a, a synoptic text. It's not just um, a, a book trying to – uh, explain some of Rawls's ideas and, you know, talk about political philosophy. This is a book that's trying to pull it all together in a way that, um, uh, for the first time, I, I, I had the, the thought that, wow, you know, this is a book about Rawls that's kind of like the way in which books about Aristotle get written. It pulls it all together and treats the, the, the man as a, uh, as a great philosopher, not just a great political theorist, not just a great theorist of justice, but uh, a deep, uh, a systematic thinker who's trying to cover all the bases. And um, so I was, I was very impressed with that. But um, uh, most uh, people, I'm sure, listening to this uh, uh, podcast um, will be familiar with uh, 
uh, at least uh, the, 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 the bullet points of Rawls's political theory. Um, and I'm sure that most uh, people listening to this will have a view about um, uh, what, uh, what's right or wrong or problematic or, or, or good uh, about Rawls's views. Um, but it might nonetheless be helpful, I think, to start off um, with a statement uh, about the sort of nuts and bolts, the essentials of Rawls's conception of justice, justice is fairness. So maybe the one way to begin, or one way to begin would be for you, Paul, to, to give us sort of a summary statement, uh, you know, a, 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 what you might say to intro to philosophy students, uh, just, in, you know, to introduce them to Rawls, just so that we're, we're all reminded of what the main, uh, 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 uh what the essential elements are, uh, in the view. Sure. Um, if I were presenting Rawls's theory to people who haven't much exposure to it, as I'm sometimes called upon to do, I'd say um, that Rawls was most fundamentally concerned with a problem that he made more and more specific in order to make it more and more tractable, so that he could so that he could give um, a clear and coherent treatment of it. I mean, most fundamentally, I suppose, the question with which he's concerned is what does justice demand under modern conditions? where modern conditions are conditions of what he calls moderate scarcity. Um, there is uh, enough stuff available to sustain decent life, so we're not faced with formulating an ethic for the lifeboat. But neither are we faced with the question of uh, what the ethics of Eden is. We don't live either in a world in which things are so scarce that lifeboat ethics is called for. And some people have to be shoved overboard because there isn't enough to sustain us all. Nor are we faced with uh, the question of how to divide limitless plenty. So the world in which we live is a world of scarcity. Um, it's also a world of moral and religious pluralism. And so when I say Rawls was concerned with the question, what does justice demand under modern conditions? Say he's concerned with the question of what justice demands under conditions of scarcity and pluralism. But he's not concerned with all kinds of justice, but more specifically with distributive justice. Um, so we might say he's concerned with the question, what does distributive justice demand under modern conditions? Well, it's natural to, to follow up that way of putting the question by asking, what does justice demand of what or of whom? Who is it that's going to be just? Who's going to or what is going to do the distribution? And Rawls focuses not on the justice of individuals in the first place or the justice of individual transactions or even the justice of individual institutions, or um, but rather he uh, takes up the question of how the basic, what he calls the basic structure of society, all societies institute, basic institutions taken together, can justly distribute goods under, given the conditions of scarcity and pluralism. Now, the goods with which he's concerned are what he calls primary goods. Roughly, they are as he says, things we want, whatever else we want, rights, liberties, income, wealth, opportunity. So really, the, so we might say the question with which he's concerned is further refined. What, how do the basic institutions of society or how can the basic institutions of a large and modern society in conditions of scarcity and pluralism justly distribute those primary goods? Now, even that is, of course, an enormously complicated question that can be made a bit more tractable still by some further idealization. So Rawls uh, 
concerns himself not with the world in which we actually live, with all the problems of noncompliance and misbehavior, but asks what an ideally just society would be like, and a society in which everybody complies and institutions comply perfectly with the demands of justice. That's a hard, so the, that's a hard enough question. The, the question we're now facing is, what does distributive justice demand of our basic institutions with respect to the distribution of primary goods? Um, even if we suppose that everybody and everything does what justice demands, we abstract away from the problems and the friction of non-compliance and bad behavior, just as in trying to figure out the laws of motion, we abstract away from um, problems of friction and imagine frictionless inclined planes. The basic problem is hard enough. The other complications can be taken up later. So that's the fundamental question with which Rawls is concerned. How does he set about to answer it? Well, I think the most basic and interesting insight of the theory is the insight that gives the theory its name. Its name is, as you said, justice is fairness. And fairness is where the key to Rawls's answer, because he thinks an ideally just society would be a fair one. It would be a society that operates in accordance with fair principles. How do we determine what principles are fair, and therefore what principles express the demands of justice? Well, his answer is, um, let's ask, what free and equal people fairly situated would agree to live under, or what principles would free and equal people fairly situated agree to live under? And if we can answer that question, then we will have identified the principles that express fairness or that express justice and that answer the question with which he's concerned. Now, in saying that the question that he's interested in can be answered by asking the people who are going to live under the principles he wants to identify. He puts his work within the long tradition of social contract thinking about political philosophy that has its origins in Hobbes and that runs through Locke and Rousseau and Kant. And that's a tradition in which he quite self-consciously locates himself. Whereas philosophers like Hobbes and Locke imagined parties to the social contract reaching an agreement in the state of nature, Rawls um, conceives of the contract situation somewhat differently. We want parties to the agreement to be fairly situated. So Rawls imagines a fair situation in which to put them, which he calls the original position. Now, there are a number of uh, features that define the original position, for which Rawls argues at the beginning of the book. The most, um, we could go through those in some detail if you'd like. But maybe it's better at this point just to say that the various conditions taken together are supposed to assure the fairness of Rawls's original position, the sure. fairness of the contract situation, so that the agreement reached in it will be fair, the principles will express fairness, and therefore justice. So there's a first cut at what he's up to in the first part of his book on justice. I could talk about more if you like, but maybe that's enough to get us started. Yeah, and that's fine. And um, what comes out of that choice situation is supposed to be precisely two principles. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us the two principles just so that we've got it on the table? <laughs> sure. The two principles of justice to which Rawls says parties in the original position would agree are these. The first, roughly, guarantees equal rights and liberties to everyone. 
So it governs the distribution of some of the primary goods, namely rights and liberties. Okay. The second of the principles deals with the distribution of income and opportunity. And it says that basic institutions would provide fair equality of opportunity. And it says that the distribution of income and wealth would be governed by what Rawls calls the difference principle. And according to the difference principle, any inequalities of income and wealth have to work to the greatest advantage of the people who are least well off. So those are the two principles of justice. The first, the equal liberty principle. The second, governing the distribution of opportunities, income and wealth. Together, they're very egalitarian principles. Right. And um, the difference principle in particular is extremely controversial. And the reasoning for it is, I think, extremely interesting, but also extremely controversial. Right. And um, I think it was good to, to, uh, to get the two principles on the table because – um, and this is in part what what stimulates uh, you to, to to write the the book. Why political liberalism? Because, um, like other twentieth century philosophers that we might uh, think of, thinking mainly of Wittgenstein, but there are others. Um, Rawls is generally understood to have a sort of early philosophy and a later philosophy, or an early period and a mm -hmm. later period. Um, and um, the the problem of or the question of how to understand the relation between uh, uh, these two uh, phases of Rawls's intellectual career, uh, marked mainly by uh, the publication of the two books, A Theory of Justice, as I say, in seventy one, and Political Liberalism in ninety three. Um, uh, you know that's a that's an interpretive question, but it's also um, uh, interesting philosophical question, or at least an interesting question about political philosophy, how to understand the relationship between the, these two works. And um, this is what your book is centrally mm -hmm. about. Uh, and um, I take it you, uh, but one of the things that is that, um, and one of the things that makes it an interesting puzzle in the case of Rawls is, and unlike in the case of Wittgenstein, for example, where the, the, the later Wittgenstein um, is more clearly seen as a kind of repudiation of the early. Mm -hmm. um, in the Rawls case, um, the later Rawls retains certain central elements uh, of, of uh, a theory of justice. And so we still, uh, in the political liberalism book, we have this, the two principles, we have the general setup of the original position and parties making choices behind a veil of ignorance. Um, so we have, um, in some ways, uh, the, what you laid out is the basics of justice's fairness is constant throughout the, 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 the two works. Um, but, and what changes is some of the philosophical, um, uh, stuff going on behind the scenes or some of the motivations. Um, and I, I take it that in your book or explicitly you say in your book that you're largely aiming to dismantle or to rebuff a common um, understanding of Rawls's move from the early period of a theory of justice to uh, his later work in political liberalism. Um, and you're out to challenge uh, this common view, which you call the public basis view. Can mm -hmm. you run us a little bit through the uh, the common understanding of how these two works fit together and how Rawls's turn is uh, is commonly understood? Sure. Let me say just a little bit about the turn, and then say something about how it's under how it's commonly understood, and then say why I think that the common understanding is mistaken, and right. saying 
the last bit, why I think the common understanding is mistaken, will take us back to theory of justice and to parts of it that I didn't um, didn't touch on in the initial exposition. Excellent. But first to the question of, or first to, to the transition and its its character, let's leave its motivation aside for a second. In the middle 1980s, so about 15 years after Theory of Justice was published, Rawls began to announce and to publish um, what some people think of as a radical rethinking of his theory. He described the theory famously in the title of the first of the essays he published in this period as political, not metaphysical. Justice as fairness is a political conception of justice and not a metaphysical one. And one of the shifts between the two that was most obvious is, or that seemed to be most obvious and most stark was a, a, what looked like a shift in philosophical methodology. And in particular, what looked like a shift in the way in which justice as fairness was to be justified. And Rawls said that justice as fairness begins from basic intuitive ideas found in the public culture of a, of a liberal democracy found in the intellectual culture of liberal political thought, dating from roughly Hobbes and Locke to the present. Now, people who know something of the history of philosophy and of the justificatory aspirations that philosophers traditionally had, particularly in the modern period, will be very surprised that Rawls thinks the basis of justification for a theory, theory of justice like his, is ideas that we all share because they're in our political culture. And what one might think could be further than the aspirations that were had by someone like Descartes, who wanted to establish um, truths on the basis of, uh, wanted to reconstruct all of human knowledge, says in the meditations, on the basis of um, truths that are self-evident. Um, whatever Rawls is up to in the later work, it surely doesn't look like it's answering to any such Cartesian aspiration, or to the aspiration that Descartes bequeathed to modern philosophy. We're starting not from what's self-evident and indubitable, but from what we all think because of the political culture that we've inherited. Um, that seemed like an enormous transition to people. Um, that that the foundation of justice as fairness was said to be in the public political culture is part of what Rawls had in mind by saying that his was a political theory of justice, and so when people, or a political conception of justice, and so when people see a large transition between early and late Rawls, part of what they have in mind, part of what they're pointing to is the recasting of justice as fairness as a political conception so understood. So that he made this transition, that he made this change, or seemed to make this change, then raises the question, why did he do it? Why recast justice as fairness as a political conception rather than the more ambitious project that it seemed some people to have been in theory of justice? Now, the most common answer to the question, I think, the most commonly held answer to the question can be explained by recalling what I said earlier in the thumbnail sketch of the brief summary of justice as fairness. Um, Recall that I said that in that summary that Rawls identified principles of justice by using the device of the social contract, a device that he reformulated for his own purposes using an original position rather than a state of nature, but the justification 
or the principles seemed to be that they would be chosen in the original position or in the, the social contract. Um, Rawls thought that the principles of justice would play an important public role in an ideally just society. They'd serve as the public basis of justification, um, the, and in particular for the public basis of justification of the distribution of primary goods. Why are liberties equal? We appeal in the well-ordered society to the principles of justice to show why they would be. Why are there some inequalities, but why don't we allow greater inequalities? Again, we appeal to the principles of justice to justify the way things are distributed. That's an important public role for the principles. But it's not just, and, and for them to play that public role, they have to be publicly known. Everybody has to know what they are. Everybody has to accept them. Everybody has to know that everybody else accepts them in the well-ordered society. But it's not just the principles that are publicly known. The argument for the principles is to be at least publicly available too, so that people know why these principles rather than some others. Um, and so the whole justificatory apparatus of Rawls's theory is at least to be part of the public culture in a well-ordered society, available for inspection so that people know why the principles have been adopted. But it is said, um, Rawls came to realize in the years after he published Theory of Justice that the apparatus he had deployed in Theory of Justice was a distinctively Kantian apparatus. The way in which the original position was constructed, the kind of freedom that's realized in the choice of principles, the fact that the principles of justice were principles that members of the well-ordered society would give themselves and um, would therefore be chosen autonomously, all was resonant of Kant's political philosophy and indeed, it is said, depended upon it. Right. But it is said that Rawls came to recognize that this would be um, too, that, that Kant's moral philosophy is too controversial a basis for principles of justice in a society that is as pluralistic as Rawls thought modern societies are, in a society that's as pluralistic as the well-ordered society would be, because after all, the well-ordered society allows and encourages liberty of thought and therefore philosophical diversity. Um, once he realized that the principles of justice would be seen to rest on so controversial a basis. He realized that the justification of them that he provided in the first part of theory of justice would do. So he had to recast the justification um, and argue that the principles were justified not by appeal to Kantian conceptions of the person and of autonomy, but to political ideas that are found in our common culture. So that's the that's I think the stock story of Rawls's transition from theory of justice to political liberalism. Now, and this is a um, this is an account that um, that you are opposed to. Let's just uh, reaffirm that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, before getting into though um, the details of your um, uh, your alternate account, um, let me ask a uh, so before we get into the actual meat of the book, sure. um, let me ask a, a methodological question because um uh, uh again as somebody who dabbles in uh, myself i'm talking about who dabbles in 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 rawls interpretation um one of the things that uh that struck me about why political liberalism uh, about the book um is um that uh you draw freely uh and uh, uh healthily uh from 
um, not only the two main books and some of the main articles that everybody reads, including the, the 1985 article that you mentioned, um, political, not metaphysical, um, but you draw from the Dewey lectures, which uh, uh, were um, given before the publication of, of political liberalism um, and in some ways reproduced the material uh, uh, there uh, in a revised form. Um, uh, and from other sorts of sources um, that uh, I take it that some Rawls interpreters um, would at least be uh, inclined to say that um, not all of Rawls's work should be treated as a unified whole in the way that your approach treats them. That is, um, some might say that the story of Rawls's trajectory from a theory of justice to political liberalism is in part the story of certain ideas being proposed and then revised or um, uh, abandoned, other ideas coming to the fore, tried out, again, revised. And so that uh, I take it that on a, on, on, a, on a more standard reading and perhaps on uh, the approach that many who uh, adopt the public basis view uh, uh, take, um, they'd be inclined to see the, uh, a lot of Rawls's writings as sort of transitional and that um, political liberalism, the book, uh, comes out in 1993, and that is not an attempt to uh, include or embrace everything that had come before, but actually supersedes uh, in various ways what was said in the Dewey lectures. Um, so can you um, say something about this unified approach where your your attempt is to bring it all together under the scope of one uh, uh, conception of a philosophical project that Rawls is pursuing all his life because it, it strikes me again, just, uh, um, as someone who dabbles in these things more than, uh, as, uh, uh, you know, full-time, uh, uh, practitioner of them. It seems to me that, um, uh, there's something to be said for this thought that, well, the political liberalism book, um, doesn't stand, uh, um, uh, doesn't have equal authority to uh, say what was said in the Dewey lectures. The political mm -hmm. liberalism book reflects a, a more finished version of what gets said in the Dewey lectures. And so when something gets said in uh, political liberalism that's not said in the Dewey lectures, that's where we should look for Rawls's considered view. Or when something gets said in the Dewey lectures and is dropped or reformed or revised – in the, the later work, it's the later work that should take authority. But it seems like uh, your treatment has um, the idea that you should pull freely from whatever sources that are uh, – that Rawls authored equally. Could you say something about about this commitment? Sure. I mean there are, there are I think a couple of ways in which I, I treated Rawls's work as unified. One is um, something you alluded to in the – in a very flattering complimentary introductory remarks that I present, uh, present Rawls as being a big and systematic thinker on a par with, or if not on a par with Aristotle, I treat him as the way in which a scholar of Aristotle might treat his subject. And, and I did, I think, try to do that because I do think that 
Rawls had a really beautiful theory. I mean, you might remember that in Anarchy State Utopia, Nozick says, until you've grappled with Rawls' book, you don't know how beautiful a philosophical theory is. <laughs> right. And right. I do think that, that TJ, the theory of justice, does lay out a really beautiful theory of justice, a tremendous philosophical ambition. I don't locate the philosophical ambitions theory of justice in the same place that other people do, I suppose, or I wouldn't express them in the same way that other people do. But I think it's a tremendously audacious book, but also a beautiful and a systematic and a highly disciplined one. Um, so I went through perhaps in more detail than anybody would want what goes on in the first part of theory of justice. But as I often say to students, however different Hobbes and Rawls might be in other respects, they have this in common. Everybody stops reading their book after the first part. The, book <laughs> the, first part. the social contract gets written and people shut the Leviathan and nobody makes it to books three and four. The social contract gets written in TJ. People shut the book, you move on to the next part of the syllabus and people don't look at parts two and three. I mean, in right. fact, I think the whole does fit together just beautifully. In the first part, the principles of justice are chosen. They're, um, in the second part, we see what institutions might instantiate them. And in the third part, we find out that the principles of justice was once chosen and institutionalized would stabilize themselves. And um, I think it's I think the way in which Rawls puts the three pieces together um, is is really just marvelous. And it wasn't as many times as I taught the book, it wasn't until I started working through it to write a book on it of my own, that I appreciated the care and the discipline with which he wrote the book. And sometimes people who do turn their attention to part three think it's something of a hodgepodge or a grab bag. And it's not, I think, as seamlessly woven together as other parts of the book. And so there's something about it that could convey the impression. But I think if you really read it quite carefully, you can see throughout the book, I mean, Rawls is making arguments with an eye toward how he's going to use them later. He doesn't take up things he doesn't need to take up. He takes up just the steps he needs to take up to make sure he takes them on a firm footing. I mean, I think really that the book is a model of systematicity, but also of power and restraint, because Rawls kept his eyes focused on just what it was that he wanted to accomplish. Um, and so there's one way of treating Rawls as unified, to which I happily plead guilty, and that is of treating him as a, a systematic thinker with a certain unity of focus who bent his energy towards pulling off a project with which he was deeply concerned. Um, but having come to see him that way, I guess that affected the way in which I thought various of his works fit together, that he was a man of tremendous discipline and focus. He resisted the opportunities, which must have been legion, to publish on all kinds of things that didn't have anything to do with the, what he thought of as his main body of work and I think his bequest to, to philosophy. He had a theory of justice that he wanted to develop and he wanted to get right. And um, however tempted he might have been to do other things, I think he resisted them and he stayed focused on the task of getting it right. A lot of people knew him much better than I did and someone who knew him well, I forgot now who it was, said that he used to refer to justice as fairness as his painting. The composition was going to be right and he was going to work on it until he got right and that's what he was going to do. And that I think is profoundly affected the way I see the work fitting together. He wrote Theory of Justice. He came to realize, I believe, that there was a serious problem in it. The serious problem wasn't located in the first part of the book, as 
public basis view alleges, was located rather in the third part of the book, the argument that the principles of justice, once institutionalized, would stabilize themselves. And so he set about fixing that problem. And I think fixing that problem took him a lot of places that he never expected to go, required a lot of new conceptual apparatus, but that the latter part of his career was focused on fixing the problems he found in, in the first book. Um, now, in order to make that exegetical argument go, I do have to draw on a lot of sources, um, in part because I think the later work the later work was not as, I think, self-conscious about the problems to which Rawls was responding as he'd been in theory of justice. And in order to tell the story I want to, I do have to draw quite widely from things written in the second part of Rawls's career. And, and yet I think that's, I think that that's okay. I mean, because, um, some of the essays that he might have thought were important that I think are important aren't what a lot of his readers think are important wrote a book, an essay called Domain of the Political and Overlapping Consensus, which he published, I think, in the 1980s in the NYU Law Review. I think it's a marvelous statement of what he's up to. It doesn't get nearly the attention that other late essays do, but I think it's a marvelous statement and deserves a lot of attention. Um, having said that, I did try, uh, maybe I didn't quite succeed, but I did try to be fairly responsible in um well, I try. No, I tried to be completely responsible. Maybe I, <laughs> I didn't succeed. I tried to be completely responsible in um, uh, recognizing when Rawls developed in taking, for example, some of the Dewey lectures to develop ideas that had been in theory of justice and to shed some light upon them, but not to regard things from the the first, the original set of Dewey lectures delivered in the eighties as uh, more authoritative than what came. Later, I think the Dewey lectures are really helpful in illuminating certain things from the early period, but they did get revised, and the revised Deweys and the changes between them help do I think help us to understand um, a lot about what was going on in the later work. Now, I know from some exchanges we had that you're you had questions about the use of materials that some people might regard as pedagogical as lectures in history of philosophy or right. of moral philosophy, history of political philosophy. We can talk about that a bit if you like, but I could go on about all this stuff forever. You don't want me to do that. So, <laughs> um. Well, let's, let's, let's move on because I do want to make sure that we, um, we get to the actual, the, the real core, uh, mm -hmm. uh, of the book, which, um, uh, you would, you were just touching on. And, um, so, um, let me try to, 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 to make a segue. Um, so, um, one of the implications, one of the consequences of the approach that you take, which is to, you know, the, as we were calling it, this unified approach to to the to all of Rawls's writings, um, and one of the things I thought was uh, was 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 kind of refreshing about the, the the book as it describes its motivations, was that you really want to take seriously, I take it, um, Rawls's comment in uh, the introduction to political liberalism about why he's writing this second book, which, uh, as you've mentioned several, you remind us several, several times in the book. And it's, it's, it's again, very helpful because I think that it really does show that, 
um, the public basis view, the public basis uh, explanation of the transition from theory of justice to political liberalism, you know, can't accommodate the fact, it seems, that Rawls himself tells you what the churn is all about. And it is about part three and not part one of a theory of justice. So um, I was very pleased to see uh, uh, um, you taking that extremely seriously. Um, so uh, let me go just again to, to sort of frame the question about the core of the book. Um, so um, on your view, uh, and again, this is obviously running counter to the public basis uh, uh, account, um, a theory of justice and political liberalism, the two major books, um, are aimed at the same problem. They're not asking different questions. They're not, you know, uh, uh, the first book isn't aimed at one question or one problem. The other one is aimed at a slightly different problem in the neighborhood, more or less. Um, they're really aimed at this question about stability or, or the question of how a society can be, as you call it, stably just. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and th the real concern that drives Rawls, um, and I want to make sure that we have time at the end to, to talk a little bit about um, some of the uh, – some of Rawls's personal motivations for his work as a political philosopher, because I think that there's uh, a lot of deeply personal stuff uh, that Rawls is working through, um, mainly the concern that uh, the so-called dark minds of Western philosophy, uh, Dostoevsky and Augustine, and, uh, and and we could include Hobbes, might be right that human beings or the world or some you know our situation is one that's so depraved that justice is impossible, and we how could we live in such a world uh, um, that uh, that, that Rawls is really concerned that uh, um, that justice might not uh, be possible for creatures like us mm -hmm. under the circumstances that you describe. Um, so the 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 difference then I take it in the most general sense between political liberalism and uh, a theory of justice is not the project or the question or the problem, but something like we might call the conceptualization of the problem. That is that. The uh, I take it your view is that the difference between the two works and the turn is all about understanding that the question of stability is more complicated than Rawls originally saw it or took it to be. Um, so if if you'll accept that as a very very general sort of again sketch of of where uh, uh, your your positive uh, uh, um, uh, uh, argument uh, is working, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about. Uh, how Rawls's conception of the problem of stability um, changes about, uh, you know, maybe you could describe a, for us how you understand the term. Sure. Let me preface that by touching on something that you said at the very beginning of, of the question. And you're quite right that I repudiate, disagree deeply with the, the public basis, despite my great respect for the people who hold it. Um, you also said that there are and you say quite rightly that there are people who think that theory of justice and political liberalism are about very different questions. And that, too, is an interpretation that's out there, I think. Burton Drebin, in an essay in the Cambridge Companion to Rawls, gives clear and concise expression to the view, saying theory of justice is about justice. Political liberalism is about legitimacy. There are other people who think that, too, and, and very, very good people with whom I disagree only with considerable trepidation. But I, I do think that theory of justice and political liberalism are about, uh, are both about justice and that, and that the project that finds expression in political liberalism is 
the project of fixing up a problem that Rawls found in TJ. Legitimacy is, I think, one part of the solution, but not the topic of the later work. Um, what do what do I think the problem of, is that Rawls found in theory of justice? It's it's roughly this. In theory of justice, as I mentioned, Rawls argues in the first part that the principles of justice would be state. Uh, he argues what identifies the principles of justice using the social contract device. In the second part, he gives some idea of what institutions might realize the principles. In the third part, he wants to argue that the principles of justice would be would stabilize themselves. Um, so principles of justice, principles that would be chosen in the social contract could be stabilized without, say, a Hobbesian sovereign to enforce them. Stabilize themselves, we could honor them freely or autonomously. Showing that we could do that is quite a tall order. Um, Ross gives a two-part argument for the conclusion that the principles of justice would be stable. One part found in chapter eight of theory of justice, fairly well known, I think, is that members of a well-ordered society living under just institutions would acquire a sense of justice. Um, that is, they would acquire a standing and effective desire to abide by the principles. We might say crudely put, a standing and effective desire to act from the motive of duty or a standing and effective good, goodwill. But Rawls also recognized that, however, uh, the, the, though we might acquire a sense of justice in living, living under a well-earned society, acquiring a sense of justice does not make temptation go away. And we might still be tempted for various reasons to act against the sense of justice. And in, and in recognizing this, I think Rawls was not just following common sense, but following Kant, who, who on Rawls's reconstruction, recognized that developing and maintaining a goodwill is hard work. It requires a lot of effort. In one passage that Rawls quotes, Kant seems to think that it requires the help of grace. Now, Rawls himself doesn't endorse the view, but mentions and thereby gives recognition to the fact that maintaining a sense of justice is itself hard work. It's something that we might be pulled away from by our conception of what's good or our conception of what we value or what we want, either episodically or um, uh, sustainably. And so in order to complete the argument that the principles of justice would be stable, Rawls had to argue, and this is the uh, one of the really audacious parts of the book, I think, that members of the well-ordered society would find it good to be just. And more specifically, he wanted to argue that they would find that doing what they had to do to maintain and act from their sense of justice is something they would regard as good. And the argument that he gives to that effect is an argument for what he calls congruence, the congruence of the right and the good. And the congruence argument seals, he thought, seals the case for stability. Crudely put, in theory of justice, he'd argued that everybody in the well-ordered society would find it good to be just because however much their conceptions of what's good or worthwhile or valuable in life might differ in other respects, and they would differ because the well-ordered society is, like ours, a pluralistic one, still there would be some values and ideals all would have in common. All would, um, by living under just institutions, learn to value the pluralism 
and the diversity that a well-ordered society makes available. They'd all be glad they lived in what Rawls calls the social union of social unions. And, he argued, all would want to give expression to their nature as free and equal rational beings. Um, whatever other plurality or diversity might be encouraged by the institutions of a well-ordered society, though those institutions would encourage convergence on those values. And if everybody converged in those values, everybody would regard having a sense of justice as good form, would do what he or she needed to maintain a sense of justice, and the well-ordered society would be stably just, because people would have a sense of justice that they were glad to act on. Now, on, on my view, Rawls, on my reading, Rawls came to recognize that that last part of the argument, the congruence argument that was supposed to seal the deal, didn't work. Because... If, a, if the institutions of a well-ordered society do indeed encourage pluralism, then it's expecting too much to expect that they will encourage even the convergence, the partial convergence of views about goodness and value that theory of justice assumed that they would. And so Rawls had to find some other way of arguing that members of the well-ordered society would maintain their sense of justice, and regard doing so as part of their good. And so uh, political liberalism is, I think, a sustained attempt to do what Rawls came to think that the congruence argument could. It's a sustained attempt to, to make plausible the claim that members of a well-ordered society would regard having, maintaining, exercising their sense of justice as part of what's good for I could go on if you like, but in a nutshell, that's that's the well. Point. Yeah, I would like you to. Um, so, so the congruence argument of theory of justice is um, is the, the the sort of thorn in the side of the view uh, as it's originally presented in theory of justice. Can you? I, I know that this this is a um, this is an ex a long book, uh, um, and uh, the details are are are, are, are very precise uh, as you lay them out. Um, but could you tell us uh, about how Rawls, um, in the later work, um, reworks the congruence uh, stuff? How does he eventually solve the the problem of um, a stable, ju a stably just society. Sure, um, or I will try anyway. Right. The, the crudest and most distilled way of putting the solution is that Rawls got to the solution by reversing the order of the quantifiers. In right. theory of justice, he had thought there is a partial conception of the good, such that everybody in the well-ordered society subscribes to it and it supports a sense of justice. In political liberalism, he flipped the quantifiers so that for every member of the well-ordered society, there is some conception of the good or the, or another, not necessarily the same, unlikely to be the same one, that supports a sense of justice, and uh, according to which his, conception, uh, his sense of justice is good for him. Somewhat less crudely and less distilled, I'd say this. Whereas in theory of justice, Rawls had thought that everybody would converge in appreciating the values of pluralism and the expression of his uh, or her nature as a free and equal rational person, Rawls came to see, Rawls argued in political liberalism that we might think life under just institutions has a somewhat different but no less profound educational or formative effect. In theory of justice, just institutions encourage this convergence of partial conception of the good. 
in a well-ordered society in, of political liberalism. And what Rawls argued is that just institutions will shape various comprehensive doctrines to which people subscribe so that their diverse comprehensive doctrines will all support, if not justice as fairness, then some liberal political conception that resembles it to a significant effect. So people might, in, in the well-ordered society of political liberalism, endorse vastly different conceptions of the good, different religious or philosophical views, but those views will all support, and the impact of just institutions come to support, um, a liberal political conception of justice. And I think, well, Rawls, I think Rawls was really impressed by um, the, and, and this is apparent, I think, or surfaces in various places, particularly in his later work, Rawls was really impressed with the fact that religious toleration, which was so resistant in the modern period, in early modern period, in such an accomplishment, is now taken for granted. Conceptions of the good, religious conceptions of the good, have, under the experience of just liberal and democratic institutions, all come to accept it. The remarkable fact of social learning and the impact of political institutions on theological um, and philosophical views of all kinds. And I think Rawls thought what, well, he famously says in political liberalism, we're going to apply the principle of toleration to philosophy itself. I think what he came to think in political liberalism is that we apply the lesson of the history of toleration to philosophy itself. That right. if democratic institutions could bring about convergence in the principle of toleration, they could bring about convergence on um, uh, justice as fairness from very, or some liberal political conception from very different points of view. Well, th this is great because um, it it leads naturally to the to the to the next thing that I, I'm 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 really eager uh, to to ask you about because um, one of the the results of 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 the book of your book that um, I think is um, very very surprising or at least was surprising in a good way uh, I should say uh, to me was that um, you know the again the the. I guess it goes hand in hand with the public basis view. Um, this 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 other sort of uh, almost metaphilosophical uh, sort of part of this story that gets told about Rawls's turn, uh, which runs, as I'm sure you're familiar, roughly like this: that you know, um, in political liberalism and in the writings leading up to it, and certainly in the work that follows, um, what we learn from Rawls is that political philosophy can't be what we all hoped it would be, right? That um, political philosophy, especially among liberal political theorists, um, has to sort of settle for a, a lowering of its ambitions. Um, and some of the famous um, sort of Rawls or later Rawlsian slogans, uh, you know, like the one you just mentioned about applying the principle of toleration to philosophy itself, um, uh, can lend themselves to this uh, uh, interpretation. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, Rawls's claim that um, uh, when we're doing liberal political philosophy and once we understand the fact of reasonable pluralism, we have to, as political theorists, quoting now, stay on the surface, philosophically speaking. Mm -hmm. And this has led, uh, Drebin is only one example, but there are several good examples, um, various theorists who are very careful readers of Rawls, mm -hmm. um, to hold that, well, uh, take it or leave it, the, you know, whether it's correct or not is a different issue. But the, 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 the metaphilosophical message 
of the later roles. And part of what the turn is about is a lowering of the ambitions of political philosophy. And this connects up with the public basis view because it is a uh, taken to be that the it's taken that the later roles is teaching us that you know the the intuitive ideas that are found in a democratic constitutional regime are where we have to begin because there's no deeper place to begin uh, that would allow liberalism to uh, um, stay true to its own conception of toleration and justification and the rest. Now, I take it that, and here's the the, the surprising and 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 really intriguing uh, part of your book, at least as I read it. I take it that on your reading of Rawls and the the the, the full Rawlsian corpus. Mm-hmm. Political liberalism is in certain ways and certainly with respect to the, the metaphilosophical uh, uh, um, uh, concerns, the more ambitious of the two books because um, in the later work and in, in, the, in, in the political liberalism book, Rawls sees the complexity of the problem of stability and still thinks that it can be <laughs> – that, that he can philosophically address it. And philosophically addressing the more complex question of stability, which we might think of as you know, how to how can society be stably just even once we understand that congruence arguments of the kind deployed in theory of justice are not going to work. Um, that that trying to uh, address stability and explain and show that stability is possible um, under those conditions is a philosophically more ambitious project than the one that Rawls was um, uh, pursuing in a theory of justice. Does this sound right? I mean, this this is something that struck me throughout the book that wow, the late, not only is the public basis view wrong, it's backwards in a certain yeah. way that that the project gets more deeply philosophical in the later work. Do you think that's right? I think that's a really intriguing read. I mean, I think the the project is, I think, tremendously, as I said before, tremendously audacious from beginning to end. I mean, showing that it's good to be just is one of the oldest problems in moral philosophy. Um, and while Rawls doesn't take the problem up in a classic form, he addresses a version of it in um in the end of theory of justice. And I think that's a tremendously ambitious thing to do in the last third of a long book showing, and this I, I think is the project from beginning to end showing the principles that are collectively rational are individually rational too, so that they wouldn't be undermined by classic collective action problems is a tremendously ambitious thing to undertake. And yet that's what Rawls was up to, I think from, from beginning to end. So there's a lot of ambition and I think unappreciated ambition to this project. Um, on the other hand, the ambition that some people saw in the early work, the quasi-Cartesian or metaphysical ambition, I'm not sure that that was there. I mean, I do think, obviously, that he Rawls long thought justice as fairness was amenable to a Kantian interpretation, which he, which I think is brilliant and which he developed in great detail in the Dewey Lectures. Um, that I think is there. I think it's it's a wonderful, intriguing dimension to the theory. But I'm not sure that that. Well, let me put it this way. I myself think that Rawls always was beginning from within the liberal democratic world and beginning with considered judgments that we all accept, um, beginning with an ethical conception or conception of the person that he found in liberal democratic. Culture. So I am not myself sure that the justificatory ambitions of political liberalism are scaled back all that much. 
Um, now, uh, to your question about whether, so, so to, to recapitulate for a moment or to take stock, I mean, I do think there's a tremendous philosophical ambition in the project from beginning to end in trying to establish that goodness and justice fit together, that collectively rational problems are individually, ra or collectively rational principles are individually rational. I'm not sure the high justificatory ambitions that people saw in the early work were there. I'm not sure that there, therefore, there's the kind of scaling back that some people perceive. But I do think your suggestion is really interesting, that Rawls came to think that the problem of stability was harder than he thought, a harder nut to crack than he thought, precisely because liberal institutions encourage pluralism, and yet he thought he saw a way to do it. Um, yeah, I think that is um, a really interesting and ambitious project. And um, it certainly took him a long time to figure out how it could be done. And I think the steps to the solution were halting. I mean, I think he was is much clearer in the late essay, Reply to Habermas, and in some of the earlier essays of the second period. But I, I think perhaps the halting character of the progress reflects what you rightly described as, as the much greater, exponentially greater difficulty of the problem. Um, but let me just say one last thing about the ambition, and this, I think, may take us to other things that you want to to discuss. Um, even if Rawls never had the justificatory ambitions that some people read into his early work, um, I mean, I'm not sure that Rawls thought that kind of justification is is what philosophy should should aim at anyway. In one of his lectures on Kant, and I wish I could put my finger on it, I would read it to you, it says that the aim of moral philosophy is self-knowledge, that we learn about ourselves by doing moral philosophy by, and by learning how moral principles are rooted in our nature. And I do think that Rawls thought one of the tasks of political philosophy is self-knowledge. By seeing what kind of societies are possible for us, we learn something about ourselves. And, um, and that is a very important philosophical project, I think. And I think it's part of what Rawls is up to. Right. Um, well, we're, 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 we're running out of time, but I, I, I do want to make sure that, uh, that, that, that we, we get to, to talk a little bit, if, if, if you can indulge us going a little bit longer than, than we might uh, normally, um, about uh, the, the, the note that you begin and end with uh, the book, which is this point about theodicy. Um, and um, so one of the themes that keeps recurring uh, in your book, but um, uh, sort of gets discussed explicitly at the beginning and the end, um, but, um, you know, it's, it's a long and complicated and, 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 uh, very precise and rigorous book. So I'm not faulting you by when I say that it's not fully developed this, this particular thought. Um, so I'd like to hear you say a little bit more about this drive that you see as a personal matter, I think, uh, in Rawls, um, that raw, you, you think that Rawls throughout his life and throughout the whole of his work, is driven by this need to be able to see the world as something worth living in. Mm -hmm. um, and um, to, again, as I had mentioned, uh, you know, I was, I remember uh, in the, the lectures on the history of political philosophy coming across that claim about Dostoevsky and Augustine being the dark minds of, of Western thought and thinking that was uh, uh, a surprising thing uh, to, to read from Rawls. Um, uh, but that this concern to, to see the world as worth living in or to see the world as 
something or uh, see the world as, as such that justice is possible. And now at the end of the book, you bring you bring this in in a very, I think, forceful way because um, there's an unpublished version of the introduction to the paperback edition of Political Liberalism, originally published in 1996, which um, apparently, which I didn't know about until reading uh, in your book, apparently makes reference to, um, you know, has Rawls wondering um, about the the bit in Genesis where God looks at what he's created and says that it's good, um, mm-hmm. where Rawls is concerned, how could a God see this world, you know, could, what, what must the world be like if a God could see it as good? Could you tell us a little bit about this? I think it must be a very deeply personal uh, um, uh, uh, drive of Rawls to see the world as not a complete disaster, morally speaking. Yeah, I think that that's right. I should begin by saying that that uh, I there are a lot of things I didn't know about Rawls. I didn't know him all that well personally. I mean, I don't think many students did. He was a very generous advisor, um, put enormous amounts of energy and time into working with us students and into working with his undergraduates. But but I didn't know him well, and I the insight that I had into his motive, deepest motivations come from trying to pull together things in the published work, stray remarks in the published work, some stray remarks and unpublished works with which I'm familiar, comments and asides heard over the years. Um, so what I have to say about his motivation doesn't reflect a deep knowledge of, of Rawls, the person. And so I wouldn't pretend to have that. And, um, and I wouldn't pretend to have insight into the deepest what deep religious roots there might be to his work. I mean, his undergraduate thesis was published a couple of years ago. It's called Inquiry into the Meaning of Sin and Faith. And it's a very interesting religious work. I've written a bit about it. In the introduction to it, Josh Cohen and Tom Nagel say that people who knew Rawls personally know that he had a deeply religious temperament. Um, but I think it's really important that if he had a religious though he had a religious temperament, those of us who try to spell out what that means not claim too much by it. Josh and Tom certainly don't, and I would And so I, in trying to discern this temperament in him and see what, how it might have motivated him, don't want to try to claim him for some orthodox kind of religion. There are people who try to do that, and I think it does his memory no good service to try and enlist him for some cause or other. So I want to be clear that, that I'm not doing that. Um, right. Uh, but, I mean, having said that, I I do think that Rawls was, was deeply concerned with the problem of the goodness of humanity, with, as you said, the question of whether the world is worth living in, or whether, uh, given that human beings are in it. Um, in one point in his lectures on Kant, he quotes Kant as saying that human history can instill a kind of loathing for our species. One might look at the awful things that Kant saw and the things that he didn't live to see, um, the things that Rawls did see in the, mid, in the middle of the century, and raise serious questions about whether human beings are good enough to sustain a just society, or whether people like Augustine and Dostoevsky and Hobbes are right. We can't really sustain a just society. And if we're to live together, it can only be because um, we're subjected to um, forces that we can't endorse, that we can't um, be justified on, on liberal grounds. I think Rawls was aiming 
arriving at a kind of self-knowledge that would show, knowledge of the human condition that would show that we are, in fact, better than the dark minds claim that we are. And one important piece of the argument that we are better than they claim that we are is that we can freely sustain a society that's much more just than anyone they thought we could live in. Um, so, I guess on my reading, the argument from stability has a very important function, not just in executing the project theory of justice, the project of political liberalism, the promise of the project of making a go of justice and fairness, seeing that a well-ordered or just society can be stable and can be stabilized freely is an important part of showing what kind of creatures we are, that we have, as he said, a moral nature, if not a perfect nature, then at least one that's good enough to sustain a just and decent society. That was a very important part of his, his motivation. And when you think of what, what he lived through, what scholars of his generation lived through and saw, you can see why, it, why he would have been deeply troubled by the question of whether we really can be good or not. Well, excellent. Um, and uh, uh, again, um, thank you so much uh, for uh, agreeing to talk to us uh, about the book, Why Political Liberalism. Um, Last question I always ask people, and I, sometimes I feel bad about asking it after somebody's just finished a major <laughs> work. <laughs> uh, what's uh, what's next? What 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 do you see as your next uh, uh, project? What what will you be doing for us next, Paul? <laughs> <Edmund>? <laughs> I, I've gotten really interested in the idea of legitimacy, which is some people think the defining topic of political liberalism. I think an interesting and important topic in it. Um, it's not going to be an exegetical project. Um, it's not going to be another Rawls project. I can't help but think like a Rawlsian, I think having steeped myself in his work for so long, but I'm really interested in understanding what the best conception of political legitimacy is, how political legitimacy functions in argument, what constraints its function imposes on the accounts we give of it. So I'm starting to immerse myself in that. I hope eventually it will result in a book and. If it does, I hope you'll be good enough to have me back. <laughs> you can count on that. Um, uh, well, that's wonderful. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for it and certainly keep me posted on on uh, how that's going. Um, but for now, um, again, let me thank you for, uh, for talking to us today. Um, and uh, again, folks, the book is Why Political Liberalism. The subtitle is On John Rawls's Political Turn. Uh, it's published with Oxford, and am I right to think that it's it's just about to be released in in soft cover? I'm promised the soft cover will be out by December. Well, excellent. Uh, um, everyone should go run out and 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 pick up several copies. I'm sure they'll make <laughs> wonderful they'll make a wonderful Christmas present. Um, Paul Weissman, thank you so much. Thank you very much. You have been listening to my interview with Professor Paul Weissman of the University of Notre Dame. We've been talking about his book. Why Political Liberalism, published by Oxford University Press and due out in a paperback edition this fall. I am Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.